Turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8. That's on page 1194. Okay. Uh, Will you stand with me as a public testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in honor of the reading of God's word? We're going to read Acts, chapter 8, verses 4 through verse 25. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. This morning, we're going to discuss three things. One, the kingdom of God expanding and spreading through Samaria. Two, we'll address what we see with this Holy Spirit baptism that takes place through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And three, we'll discuss false converts in the church. The kingdom of God spreading. We begin with those people who were scattered. Look at verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Who was it that was scattered If you go back earlier in chapter 8 to verse 1, you see that after the stoning of Stephen, 
there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And how many were scattered? They're all scattered except the apostles. The apostles stand back. They stay in Jerusalem. They're not willing to back down in the face of persecution. But the disciples, they leave. They're going out. The, the, in the pers- amidst the persecution in Jerusalem, they're fleeing the stoning that's happening with Stephen. And they go about and what do they do when they're scattered? They preach the word of God. Now, we know what that means. We've read five sermons so far in Acts. We've read four by Peter and we've read one by Stephen. We know that the early church is devoted to the apostles teaching to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship and the prayers. And we've seen the elements of these sermons that are embedded in the apostles teaching. And what are they? Every one of these sermons that we've seen preached so far in Acts declares publicly and boldly and without reservation the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of these sermons in Acts that we've seen, even when it's little snippets of a sermon, declares that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And these sermons display that we now, this is a new epoch of time, that we live in an age of fulfillment. And dear friend, those sermons all preach that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is king and that he reigns at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And in these sermons, there is a public call to repentance upon hearing that the Lord Jesus has paid the penalty for sin and reigns at the right hand of the father after the ascension. And so when we read that Philip proclaimed to them the Christ, we know before we even get to verse 12 in chapter eight, that he must be preaching about the kingdom of God. And I want to tell you, there's a difference between the word preach And the word proclaim often when you see it in the New Testament, the idea of preaching is it's the word from which we get our word evangelism. It's the the spreading out of the gospel. It's the telling the good news when you see and that's happening when you see proclaim here. That's that's got some oomph to it. That is the idea to herald. And it always comes with it. The suggestion of formality. There's some gravity to it. And it's an authority which must be listened to. And obeyed. We see this in Luke chapter four when we read that Jesus Christ is preaching in the synagogues. It's that same word. It's the idea that he is proclaiming, that he is declaring something with gravity and with authority. And the hearer, they better listen. They better have ears to hear. Now, of course, as these men and women of God are going out and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're scattered. And it reminds us that of the parable of the sower. Scattering the seed. And you know that when you're scattering seed, it's it's mixed results. And when Philip is up there preaching, when he's preaching in Samaria, he's not going out and doing a soil analysis of the crowds. They're all listening to him, but he's not investigating the heart of each and every hearer. He's throwing out the seed. And sometimes, you know, seed falls on a path. And the birds can come and snatch it away. Sometimes, as you know, seed can fall on rocky ground. And it'll spring up. And the heat of the day will scorch it with the sun. It'll go away. And you know that sometimes seed will be 
sown among the thorns. It'll grow a little and the thorns will choke it out. But praise God, praise God that seed falls on good soil, soil tilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, sword tilled with the power of the Holy Spirit, prepared to hear the word of God. And it'll bring forth 30, 60, 100 fold. And so Philip is preaching to anyone who's going to listen to him. And he's preaching, we know, with boldness. And when you preach the gospel, when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ in your daily walk, when you come up here and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, Chad and Chris, when you teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, Fletcher to these middle schoolers or these Sunday school teachers with kids, you need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness. With confidence because we know for a fact that he is resurrected from the dead. We know for a fact that he has paid the penalty for sin. We know for a fact that he has come to save sinners for himself. And we know for a fact that Jesus Christ reigns and that is hallelujah ground for God's people. Don't tolerate somebody who comes and preaches to you. who is not confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to note a great irony that is happening here. This is a time in national Israel where national Israel believed the Samaritans to be an ignominious people. If you're from Chapel Hill, that means bad. (laughs) They viewed them as half-breeds. They had a rival temple. They had an opposing mountain offering false sacrifices in a vain attempt at atonement. And yet, think about this. The high priest and the Sanhedrin, when they are stoning Stephen and they're driving the disciples out to the rest of Judea and even to Samaria, they are unwittingly bringing salvation to the Samaritans because God's purposes will stand. And no priest, no man with a stone in his hand is going to get in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ and him getting his people. For we serve a great shepherd. And that shepherd is going to tend to his sheep. And so we can marvel with thankfulness at the beauty of this redemptive history about how people and the Bible's rich with this, as you know, people unwittingly playing into God's hand. But, you know, the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Both hearts had to be prepared for this moment. Do you understand that? We are introduced in Luke's corpus to Samaritans three times. Luke 9, Luke 10, and Luke 17. In Luke 9, we read that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The old translations will have he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And he sent, he, Jesus, sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. They didn't like it when. So if you if, to picture the geography of this, Capernaum and Galilee are to the north. Samaria, Samaria is just south of them. And then Jerusalem is south of that. So to get from the shortest route from Galilee to Jerusalem would be through Samaria. And so he's trying that at first in Luke and, and they're rejecting him. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. You see how their hearts, their hearts, the preacher's hearts had to be changed. There's a double miracle here that's happening. The hearts of the disciples and the hearts of the Samaritans. The next time you see a Samaritan, a man of this shunned and despised race in Luke, is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now think about that in relation to this rivalry that's happening. Where you see salvation come through one who is lowly. One who is rejected by men. One who has compassion on one with whom he should be at enmity. Who healed his wounds in that story. Who paid his debt. Who refreshed the broken with oil. And revived the thirsty with wine even though he would have been satisfied with brackish water. Who, in short, had mercy, and though an enemy by nature and custom, displayed himself a true friend and neighbor. And what does Jesus tell his disciples after relaying that story? He says, go and do likewise. And here, Philip, this humble feeder of widows, This man fleeing the stones of wrath in Jerusalem heeds the calling of his Savior and gladly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to people with whom he would formerly be opposed. And no doubt Philip had heard the account of how Jesus healed ten lepers one day. Ten untouchable men commanded to live in isolation and loneliness, compelled to be helpless and hopeless. How when, when, when covered by uncleanness, these ten men are bound together. They're together. They're coming to Jesus together. But then upon healing, only the foreigner, only the Samaritan returns to worship Jesus. With the other nine, satisfied to go back to types and shadows. Satisfied with a physical temple and animal sacrifices. Only the Samaritan came back and bowed at the feet of his savior. And he learned in that, that that race doesn't matter when you're dead in sin. And we learn from Galatians that race doesn't matter when you're made alive with Christ. There is no room for for racial or ethnic rivalry. There is no room for that in the body of Christ. There is no room for that in this church and there is no room for that in the generation to come. And when this man is redeemed, And given life, this Samaritan, he knows that he can come worship at the feet of this Jewish carpenter. Now, the crowds we read are with one accord. They paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And we may have mentioned this before in here, but crowds and acts should be viewed as their own character. They kind of always move together. Okay, And a word of warning, crowds are dangerous. Sometimes they're with you. It feels good. And sometimes they're against you. Our savior encountered this in the span of less than a week. On one day, the crowds are cheering him as the son of David. And later that week, the crowd is saying, give us Barabbas. Be careful about trusting the response of crowds. But here they're unified. They're locked in. They're locked in both to the preaching that Philip is doing and to the signs he's displaying. And what are these signs? They're twofold. One, he's 
casting out unclean spirits. And two, he's healing the lame and the paralyzed. Both of those things, casting out unclean spirits, healing the lame and the paralyzed, both of those miracles preach something. Any miracle you read in the book of Acts is preaching something. Any work that you do in your daily life is preaching something. And the, the sermon that's being preached by these miracles is that the kingdom of God has come and that Jesus Christ is resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father. One day, our Savior healed a man who was oppressed by demons. And this man, the nature of his demonic oppression was such that he couldn't hear and that he couldn't speak. He was blind. And when Jesus cast out the demon, the man's sight was restored. And all of a sudden he could speak again. And the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? That is, can this be the promised one, the king promised so long ago? The Pharisees heard this and fearing loss of their own power and authority and refusing to reconsider their errant view of the kingdom. They accused our Lord, saying it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, we read that Jesus said every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Listen, listen. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What sermon then is being preached by Philip the evangelist casting out demons? It's preaching just like what happened when Jesus cast out demons, that the kingdom of God has come upon them. It preaches that the strong man has been bound, that he no longer has free reign to deceive the nations. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is going forth and that people even among this rejected race we now come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Philip is doing here is he is plundering the strong man's house and he is taking those goods that Satan thought was rightfully his. The same is true with the healing of the lame and the paralyzed. When Jesus was teaching and healing, when he was in his earthly ministry, as you can imagine, great crowds would follow him. And one day Jesus is at somebody's house. And it's packed. It's packed to the brim. Nobody else can get in. And a couple of men have a, a couple of men have a paralyzed man. Can't walk. They have him on a stretcher. They try to get in. They can't get in. The crowd is too thick. They can't get in between the shoulders of the men standing there. And so they devise a plan. They're going to lower him down through the roof. They're going to get this lame man, this paralyzed man, in the presence of the Savior. They're going to bring a man who is typologically dead to the presence of the one who is the author of life. They're going to get him there. They lower him down and they let him down in their midst before Jesus. And Jesus, of course, heals the spiritual death first for seeing their faith. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. 
Of course, the scribes and the Pharisees hear this and they immediately accuse our Lord of blasphemy, saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who indeed? For Jesus Christ is God. He is the son of God. He is God. And he came to forgive sinners and to pay the penalty for their sin. And Jesus perceives their thoughts. And we're told he answers them saying, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk. But that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the man who was paralyzed. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately, not waiting, not after a while, immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Do you see how healing a paralyzed man preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Someone who has to lie down and all of a sudden he can be raised up. So these sermons, these these sermons that are being preached to the miracles performed by Philip, they are not pointing to Philip the evangelist or Philip the deacon. They are pointing the listener and they are pointing the audience to Jesus Christ. This one who has the power to forgive sins. This man who is God. This man who is resurrected from the dead. This man who reigns at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Indeed, when Jesus sent out the 72, Luke writes that Jesus said, Heal the sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. And dear friend, when we pray for the sick in our church, as we've been doing, and as we're going to continue to do, when we do that, we are asking God to manifest and display the full consummation of his kingdom in the here and now. For there is going to come a glad, happy day where there are no more hard conversations with kids. You believe that? You better believe it this morning. If you don't believe that, you don't need to be here. Okay? You just don't, because it would be foolishness for us to proclaim it, but not believe it. He took our illnesses. He bore our diseases. That's not just high theological talk. That happened on the cross. And that is why Jesus Christ came to bring in the kingdom. And it is inaugurated at his first coming. And it will be fully consummated when he comes again. And there is no more pain. And there is no more sorrow. And we live in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the field we see. It was white with harvest for they believed Philip. They took joy in the good news that the kingdom of God had come, that Jesus Christ had fulfilled the scriptures, that Jesus Christ was bodily resurrected at the right hand of God and has given his life as a ransom for sinners. And the apostles hear this in Jerusalem. They hear that the Samaritans, that the region of Samaria has received the word of God. And they send Peter and John down. And we're not told, you kind of wonder reading the account, are are they back in Jerusalem thinking, okay, really? Are they really getting it? Are the the Samaritans really converting? But I think they believed it. I think they heard the accounts and they said, okay, this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Acts 1 at his ascension, that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He preceded that with, you will receive power when the spirit comes upon you so that you will be my witnesses all over the world. And so this spirit empowered preacher, this Philip, the deacon, who is now Philip, the evangelist, 
is winning converts in Samaria. So Peter and John go down. They've heard the Holy Spirit has not fallen on them. And so we've done this before, but I want to iterate again that there is a difference between these three things. This is going to be quick. There is a difference between Holy Spirit baptism, being filled with the Spirit, and regeneration. Abraham was regenerated. Everybody who's ever been saved has been given a new heart and a new spirit. Everybody who's ever been saved was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham was regenerated. Moses was regenerated. Isaac was regenerated. That's the only way you're in. Moreover, Peter was regenerated prior to the day of Pentecost. He's saved before the day of Pentecost. The apostles are saved before the day of Pentecost comes. They are regenerated. They are made new. Then there's the idea of being filled with the Spirit. You see that's used two ways in the Gospels and Acts. One way is a particular empowerment for a moment. So that you may see Peter filled with the Spirit before he's hailed before the Sanhedrin. Okay, Or Stephen is filled with the Spirit before he's hailed before the Sanhedrin. It's also used to describe those who are just growing in the faith. And so you'll see the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit in joy. Or you may see that when they're appointing deacons in the church of Jerusalem, they're looking for people full of faith and full of wisdom in the spirit. That's, that's, a, that's a demarcation that they're growing in the Lord. That's different than Holy Spirit baptism. Holy Spirit baptism happens four times in the book of Acts. It happens in Acts 2 at Pentecost. It happens in Acts 8 at Samaria. It happens in Acts 10 at Cornelius' house. And it happens in Acts 19 when Paul comes across the disciples of John at Ephesus. And if you put these things together, and we'll go through this more if, if we get to Acts chapter 10. But if you put these things together, you'll see that a few elements are present at each of these Holy Spirit baptisms. One is there is an apostolic presence each time. Peter the first three times and Paul the last time. Two, there's no evidence that there's an association with conversion the moment of conversion, and Holy Spirit baptism. It's not like in, in the next week when we do the Ethiopian eunuch, he does, you don't see Holy Spirit baptism associated with his conversion. You don't see Holy Spirit baptism associated with the conversion of those people who are saved and baptized before Peter and John come down. So when the gospel is being preached and when someone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ, in the book of Acts, that's not immediately accompanied by some description of Holy Spirit baptism. Why do you have it then? It's the third element. Each time you see it, it displays the worldwide global nature of the kingdom of God. That's true at Pentecost, which is kind of a reversal of Babel, whereas Babel, the languages are confused and the people disperse. At Pentecost, everybody hears in their own native tongue and they come together to Jerusalem. At Samaria, it's a new people group. There's only three types of people in the Jewish mind, Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. It's a new people group, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them through the laying of hands by the apostles. Then, even though, I mean, under any accounting of it, an, an Ethiopian is going to be a Gentile. That's Acts 8. Acts 10, Cornelius, is when the Spirit falls on the Gentiles for the first time, we see. Okay? And you know the Ethiopian eunuch is converted based on the story. And then in Acts 19, when Paul comes across the disciples of John and they are baptized with the Holy Spirit after the laying on of hands by Paul, 
You can see what they go do immediately as they're preaching in the synagogues in Ephesus and they're kicked out. They're speaking in tongues there. And then they go to the school of Tyrannus where the gospel, like everybody from Asia Minor, is coming there. And the gospel spreads out in kind of a spoke and hub and spoke approach. So each time you see Holy Spirit baptism, it is accompanied with apostolic presence. And it is going to preach the worldwide nature of the kingdom of God. And we could we would do well in reading Acts if we, this is a Wikipedia word, if you disambiguate Holy Spirit baptism, conversion, regeneration, and being filled with the Spirit. But what you see, one thing we need to note with the apostles laying hands on the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit coming down is this is an eschatological moment. This is the kingdom of God coming to the whole world. And in turn, and this is thematic in the books of Acts, there is a ecclesiastical shift from Jerusalem to the wider world, the pinnacle of which, the fulcrum of which is actually Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, after which the centrality of Jerusalem fades into the background as you read the rest of Acts. What it's preaching here is that the kingdom is not physical, but spiritual. It is displayed in the Jerusalem above the Israel of God, that is the church. And so in this vein, I just want to say that a lot of people are looking for a physical kingdom, even if they wouldn't word it as such. Many long for the rebuilding of the temple or to see Christian dominance of earthly political institutions as a sign of the kingdom. But the signs of the kingdom are far humbler and simpler than that. They don't come in grand buildings or institutions. It's twofold. It is a bloody cross and it's an empty tomb. The kingdom, the sovereign dynamic reign of Christ is not an earthly regime, but it is the redemption of God's people. Their freedom from sin and freedom from the flesh. That's what we're looking for. That is how we rejoice in being part of the kingdom of God, not by taking over political dominance of institutions or countries or resurrecting the temple in Jerusalem. It is by being given a new heart and a new spirit and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is triumphant, not in taking over world institutions, but by suffering with Christ, by preaching the gospel and by rejoicing when we see those dead in sin come alive in Jesus Christ. Simon. There's a man in this city of Samaria named Simon. He's a magician. There's things he can do. He's performing some sort of signs. And people are amazed, as you can imagine. And he, and he tells the people, did you see that? Verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Beware the man who is telling you that he is great. You hear me? Run away from that man. Nevertheless, the people are amazed. They believe him. They're seeing these signs he's performing. He says he's great. He's doing these signs. We believe him. They even come to say that this man is the power of God that is called great. Just rank blasphemy. 
when a man is preaching about himself and inviting you to glorify himself, he is inviting you to participate in blasphemy. Beware of that. Calls to mind Herod Agrippa at the end of Acts 12, when they read that it was the voice of God and not of a man. And God kills him right there on the spot. Simon is always pointing to himself, but you read in verse 12, when they, meaning the city of Samaria, believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they're baptized. You see that contradictory conjunction there. You're making a shift in that city between followers of Simon and followers of Jesus that indicates they're leaving him. They're no longer giving him accolades. They're now following Christ. Then you get to this disturbing line in verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Then you get to verse 18. When Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying out of the apostles hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wants an exchange of value. He wants to give some money in exchange for the power to convey the Holy Spirit of God. And Peter calls him out as any preacher should call somebody out if they figure out that somebody is in the church for their own gain. Simon's a false convert. He's in it for self-gain. He's a hired hand. He's not a shepherd. You can tell a false convert in the church because they're going to always be out for themselves. They're going to wilt at adversity. They're going to be the seed that pops up and is scorched by the sun or is choked out by the weeds and thorns. You're going to see that they're unrepentant. In church, we need to be wise and know the difference between remorse and pitifulness and repentance, because there's a difference. They're going to be a factious man. Beware of the factious man, Paul tells Titus. That person is always stirring up controversy. That person is always poking. Every time you turn around, he's, he's always saying, y'all are doing it wrong. I've got some new idea. You've got to follow me. That's really a form of self-aggrandizement. Probably most importantly, the the false convert church member you're going to see is fruitless. On his way to Jerusalem near the end of his life, Jesus was hungry. He saw a fig tree. And the fig tree was in leaf, indicating that it should have fruit on it. Jesus comes up to it. He sees that it has no fruit. And he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. And that fig tree withered at once and died. And the disciples were amazed. That fig tree in leaf was all show. And from a distance, you would swear that the guy who says he believes and the guy who's baptized, even by, you know, this evangelist, Philip, you would swear that he had fruit. But upon close examination, you can see the false convert has no fruit because close examination reveals the truth. So what do you do with unsaved church members? Go down to verse 22. 
Peter rejects the money, of course, and then Peter calls him to repentance. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the goal of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. If you're a child of God, you have been set free from sin. But if you are not, you are the slave to the one you obey, either sin, which leads to death or obedience, which leads to righteousness. And I want you to note Simon's answer. Peter was right to call him to repentance. If you have an unsaved church member, your job is to call that person to repentance. Look at Simon's response. It's can I avoid the consequences? He says he doesn't Simon doesn't pray out to God himself. He says, Peter, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you had said may come to me. This man does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He has a relationship with Peter and he's asking Peter to intercede for him. And that's not it. You will know if somebody has a relationship with Jesus Christ, if when they come to that moment and we all come to that moment of toughness in life, who are they crying out to? Are you crying out to Jesus Christ? Or are you only trying to get on somebody's prayer list, hoping that their holiness will be good enough to get you in? But I'll tell you, okay, you can end it there. It's a downer. But I want you to look at what happens after that. Now, when they had testified, that's Peter and John, and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You want evidence of a saved church member? Kind of an upbeat, beyond general statement of fruit. A saved church member loves the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paulette McKinney's husband, Lamar, used to say that the Lord had saved him and he never got over it. You remember that? I hope you're not over it. Listen, we deserve eternal condemnation, banishment, and destruction. We don't deserve to be co-heirs of Jesus Christ and to participate in his kingdom. He has taken us who were at enmity with God and made us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And that is shouting ground for us. And Peter and John aren't over it yet. And so even though they had laid hands on these Samaritans, the spirit had come down. They had this good report. They're not satisfied to hightail it back to Jerusalem. They're going to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ along the way. And that is a call to every one of us. Don't wait till next Sunday morning to be preaching the gospel in your daily lives. You, the liturgy of your daily life needs to be about bringing you closer to Christ and bringing those around you closer to Jesus Christ by spreading the gospel, by sowing the seed promiscuously and without care of what type of soil you are throwing that seed on. And that's the encouragement for us today, this week and every week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have richly blessed us. You have made us who were at enmity with you like the Samaritan who was rejected. You have brought us into your fold. You have grafted us into the olive tree. You have torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And you have made us part of the kingdom of God. We praise you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, who paid an atonement for our sins.
We praise you for your Holy Spirit giving us life. And we praise you that there will be a glad, happy day when Jesus comes again and sets the world anew. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.